Bring it in. Slightly later edition of the read option here. Coming to you Tuesday morning. Uh, we just look, we just wanted to get it out after game five last night. Uh, you know, sometimes with the way this schedule's been working out, it's kind of been lining up on the days we record. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, we weren't late in anything because last night was the most important game of the series. Now, the last time we talked to you guys, we recorded Thursday night. We were talking about game four in Boston and what was going to happen while Steph Curry happened. Uh, an unreal Steph Curry performance, 43 points. It, it, it's a not so subtle reminder as to just how unbelievable that guy is. Um, there's a reason he's, I think, one of the most influential basketball players in the history of the game. I would put him up there with Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, uh, you know, and the NBA is often defined by its error eras, right? And this era of basketball, the last 10 years of NBA basketball is defined off of Steph Curry. And game four is a reminder of that. Game four is a reminder of what he can do when he gets onto a basketball court. And so there's a lot to get into from game four, a little bit in game four, but mainly we're going to talk about game five. Huge swing in the series. I am solo today because Scotty and Vito are both working during the day. I uh, did my radio show this morning, so I'm all freed up, and we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of Game 5. Uh, a little more on Game 4. Um, we said on the pod on Friday that this was kind of my expectation, right? I thought Golden State had a really good chance to go in there and win Game 5. And ultimately, what we saw out of it was – a, Steph Curry being unbelievable, but B, the resiliency of a team that has been there before. And we've talked it to death. A lot of the media talked it to death, but I honestly don't, I don't think you can overstate, right? I mean, we use the buzzword culture all the time, but I don't think you can overstate what experience does for you, right? You know, Al Horford, for all of his experience as, as a player, this is his first time in the finals. He had the most playoff wins or playoff appearances in a game having never played in an NBA finals. And now he's here. And at age 36, 37, you can tell that there's an extra level that you kind of have to get to physically and mentally in order to push through, to continue to be great. And in games four and ultimately, as we saw in games five, Al Horford wasn't that guy, right? Al Horford was the guy in games one, two, and three, who was sprinting up and down the floor, Looked like he had all, you know, tons of bunnies. He was jumping all over the place, obviously burying threes. You know, Al Horford was a huge difference maker for them. Uh, Robert Williams, who is just battling through debilitating injuries, so it seems, he's found ways uh, in games one through three to, to make a huge difference, to be one of the most, if not arguably, I think he is arguably the most important player not the most important but what he adds to them really does kind of take them over the edge of just all right really good playoff team to like oh wow his defense his putbacks the offensive rebounding especially against a smaller team that has no real shot blocker no real post threat in golden state i mean some of the chase down stuff and and the, the his ability to contest shots on guys like steph i mean that's been huge for him but in games four and five we didn't see that version of robert williams 
game four was the first time that Marcus Smart had uh, 18 points in a playoff game this season that the Celtics lost. Going into that, I think they were 8-0 in games where Marcus Smart had 18 or more points. He had 18 points in game four, and they lost because he also put up over 20 shots, right, which is just way too many shots for Marcus Smart. And he missed a couple of big threes down the stretch. I mean, Boston was a position at home to put this series away. In the closing five, 10 minutes, five to six minutes, I should say, of that game four was really eye-opening. Because, yes, Steph was unbelievable. But Steph had no help. I mean, Wiggins, the rebounding from Wiggins was massive. He had 16 rebounds, 17 points, an unbelievable performance from him, which they needed because Draymond wasn't doing anything. Another bad game from Draymond in game four. Clay was all right. He scored the ball for them, but – the biggest thing I saw from Clay in game four was the defense in closeout moments in the fourth quarter against guys like Jalen Brown, who like Jalen Brown up until game five, honestly, had been the best scorer, at least for the Boston Celtics. And now you look at that game four, how the momentum shifted, knowing they were going to have to go to Golden State in game five, knowing that Boston just blew a chance to go up 3-1 and, and potentially ice out the series. So even if you did lose game five, you still would be up 3-2 at home to close out the game in the garden. And instead, they let one slip through their fingers behind an unbelievable all-time playoff performance from Steph Curry. And again, that's what makes Steph Curry so incredible. I mean, so much of this playoffs, we've talked about his ability to get into the paint, right, and, and to, to finish at the rim and the fact that the three hasn't been there for a lot of the playoffs. And yet, through the first four games, he was on another level that he had never been to in an NBA Finals. The impact that you see about Steph, which we're going to get to a little bit in game five, you know, that was all there. But the fact that he's pushing in and, and just draining these threes left and right and also was able to take guys off the dribble, finishing at crazy angles – I mean, he willed that team to a huge, huge win uh, and, and the closeout defense for Golden State. And that's honestly the most underrated aspect of Golden State, who has always been a good defensive team. The defense that they've played in big moments in this series when they've needed it most, even if they have a drop off quarter where Boston gets hot and it's just they're fighting under screens instead of fighting over screens, right? They're taking the easy way out and they're leaving guys like Jason Tatum open threes who Tatum shooting over 40% from three in this series, but he's also shooting 30% from the field as a whole. I mean, his field goal percentage it, going into game five, he had as many three pointers as he had two pointers. He had 14 threes made. He had 14 two pointers made. I mean, that you, you just can't have that if you're Jason Tatum and you're supposed to be the best player on a potential championship team, which is part of what makes this Boston team so freaking weird, which we've talked about at nauseum throughout this playoff run. It's just, I don't, I don't know what to expect from Boston at any time. They're the weirdest team I've ever seen almost up three, one in an NBA finals. And unfortunately for them, they, they end up blowing game four, which is a game that they were in control of for the majority of the game until they got to the fourth quarter. And then that's when we saw, the Warriors in that last five minute stretch completely take the game over in the last five minutes of that game, Boston had only scored three points. So that's part of that experience coming into play. That's part of that. We've been here before. We're not scared of the fact that we're down two one. We're not even scared of the fact that we've been losing and not playing our best and our best player is completely carrying us on his back, but we're still going to do the things needed. Clay hits a clutch three in game four. They close it out. They tie up the series and go back 
to San Francisco, which leads us to Monday night, game five in the new Chase Center, I believe it's called, which I still want to call Oracle, but it's not. Uh, following up a 43-point performance in the NBA Finals is hard. Um, and you would think, yeah, it's hard, but Steph's been unbelievable in this series. He's still going to get his. But one of the things we talked about on Friday with, with Scotty and I was this whole idea that you can't just win – you're not going to win every single game the same way, right? Every game has its own personality, has its own DNA in the NBA Finals. And really, really good championship teams will figure out different ways to win the game based off of individual players stepping up and having huge games. And for the first time in his career, last night, Andrew Wiggins just had his first back-to-back double-double of his career, putting in 26 points with 13 rebounds. And the Golden State Warriors cruised. Uh, the first half last night was all Golden State. The defense that they played on Boston was unbelievable. Now, Boston starts off the game 0 of 12 from three, which certainly doesn't help. Um, but at the same time, there was no offensive rhythm to Boston whatsoever. They looked completely lost. They looked like the versions of, goal, of, of Boston in the playoffs that we saw two or three years ago where it was, I didn't want the ball passing, playing kind of patty cake, hot potato, passing around the you know the outside until it's like, all right, well, I guess Jason Tatum's going to drive into the lane who for his size and athleticism and everything, the fact that that dude doesn't try to go up and dunk on people. Like he had the famous dunk on LeBron in the playoffs in 2018 and everybody thought, oh man, like this is what Jason Tatum's going to be. I he doesn't do that anymore. He doesn't attack the rim with any sort of ferocity with his six, nine frame. Like, dude, you need to be looking to end people's careers with dunks, right? You want to be putting up more potent. You did it to LeBron when you were 19, 20 years old. Why aren't you doing that to Andrew Wiggins? Why aren't you doing that to Clay Thompson or Kevon Looney? Because you can, you have every physical ability to do that. And instead he's just, basically settling for these off balance looking to try to draw the contact, but he's not good at drawing contact or he's going to take some fadeaway, terrible three or, I mean, honestly, he's been shooting the three ball well and he hits really good step back threes. He had a couple of daggers in the second half once they started making their comeback in the third quarter, but these mid range shots where it's like, Hey, you got the matchup, take it to the rack. Right. And instead he's settling for these, these turnarounds where it doesn't really look like he's super comfortable. And what I wrote down about Tatum was like, Tatum actually played pretty well last night, all things considered, right? Finishes with 27 and 10, four assists. He made the right decision a lot, and he had absolutely no help from anybody. Jalen Brown had the weakest 18 points I've ever seen from Jalen Brown. You know, that, and Jalen Brown put together the performance that, like, Andrew Wiggins did in game three and in game one, right? Where it's like, damn, Andrew Wiggins had 18 points. And it's like, I, did, I didn't even notice he was on the floor half the time. Jalen Brown was a non-factor. And in, in fact, no, he was a factor, but a negative factor. Five turnovers, uh, four turnovers for Jason Tatum, another four for Marcus Smart, two from Al Horford. They were terrible. Um, and and that's, the, that's from the starters, right? Jay, Jason Tatum is still only 24 years old, right? And we're looking at him through the lens of like, this is a guy who's supposed to be one of the best five players in the NBA right now. And if they win the championship, that's how we'll talk about him. 
in that class. And if we lose, we're going to, if, if they lose, we're going to talk about Jason Tatum as, you know, fringe top 10 kind of similar to how we were kind of gassing up Devin Booker last year. I was like, oh, is Devin Booker in that, you know, one of the, that top echelon of, of scoring guards? Is he, oh, the comparisons to Kobe doing the same thing now with Jason Tatum and Kobe? And it's like, no, these guys are still really young. They're still developing. They still have a little while to go before they're going to be, have all of the tricks in their bag to know this. And what I saw from Jason Tatum last night was a player who was good, not great, but more than anything, he looked young. He looked inexperienced. He looked like the moment wasn't quite he was almost too big for him like he wasn't fully ready for it like his brain is processing and saying like I'm doing everything I can with my skill set now to put us in a position to win and with that third quarter that Boston went on after starting the game 0 of 12 from three to rattle off eight straight threes and then take the lead after they were down as much as 16 in the first half was a wild run and they, they out-third-quartered the third-quarter Golden State Warriors, right? Like, they did what Golden State does best in the third quarter. But the resiliency of, this, of that Golden State team to make a couple of big shots, Clay hit two huge threes during that big Boston run in the third quarter that kept them in the game. And then the Jordan Poole buzzer beater, second one from half court at the end of the third quarter, this NBA Finals was absolutely massive because then the third quarter ends – you watch the whole third quarter, like Boston flat out dominated. And then you look at the end result and you're like, wait, but Golden State's still winning. I mean, Boston outscored Golden State 35 to 24 in the third quarter. But Golden State still ended up being on top at the end of it. And that is the most important aspect of this, which is that Golden State continued to find a way. And so I... I'm not ready to end write the series off. I think a lot of people are already on that way. I still was feeling Golden State in seven, even after game three, when it felt like, man, Boston is just bigger, stronger, faster. But this wall that I had a feeling they might hit because of the, just the exhaustion that they've had, right? Back-to-back seven-game series, tough, grueling seven-game series where you're guarding Giannis and then you're guarding the Heat culture, right, in, in the Miami Heat. Like, those are tough series. And they come out hot. But the Golden State Warriors have been there and done that. Steve Kerr, as much as anybody. I mean, think about the teams he's been around with, right? Obviously, he's got eight rings total, both as a player and a coach. He won four as a player, or five as a player, two with San Antonio, three with the Chicago Bulls. Played with Tim Duncan, played for Pop, played with for Phil Jackson, who's his like number one like mentor. Obviously played with Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. He's been a part of some of the best teams in the history of the NBA. This guy, no. And then in addition to that, coached, you know, if, if we're talking about like two of the top three greatest dynasty or three-year stretches of NBA teams, because I think it's tough to say like, oh, the 1986 Celtics are the best team ever. Like you can do that. But I think it's better to look at like two or three-year kind of window. The second three-peat team for the Bulls, and then the KD Steph Warriors and that, those runs, those are two of the top three teams in NBA history. And Steve Kerr played on one of them and coached the other. So he's been around greatness. He knows how long a series goes and he knows, okay, this one team's striking out first, right? It's almost a little rope dope style. They came out swinging, Al Horford sprinting up and down the court. These other guys feeling all gassed up, extra juiced up. And then all of a sudden, 
two games after being up two one with dominating, you know, just look, take the last five minutes of game four and then game five. That's how this entire series is switched. We're talking about maybe what 50 less than an hour of gameplay, 55 minutes max has completely taken this series from being three, one Boston's going to win to now it seems like this is golden States to lose. And that's how the NBA finals can work. Sometimes all that being said, Boston is a really, really good team. And I know they're going to come out swinging for the fences in game six, but I don't know how much they have left in the tank. I don't know what the defense that golden state was playing. And, and, I want to get into some of the other stuff here with, with Golden State because, to me, Golden State played better than Boston played poorly. Boston played better. All right, 18 turnovers, can't do that. Um, Boston killed on the offensive glass but did not finish. They were terrible at the free throw line. At one point, I think they were two of eight from the free throw line in the first half. You can't have that. Uh, I know Tatum, I, Tatum was two of six himself from free throw. Um from the stride that's 21 of 31 as, as a total. Uh, and, and they, that's the other thing too. I mean, they got to the line significantly more. They got to the line 31 times in this game. Golden state only got to the line 15 times. The officiating was terrible once again, but I did feel like it was so bad that it actually swung and it actually kind of evened out the game, right? Like, Golden State got to the line, or Boston gets to the line 31 times, but Draymond probably could have picked up a technical or two, and he didn't. Uh, but the big difference there is 13 to 15 from the free throw line for Golden State, 21 of 31. Right? I mean, that, that's that's significant points left on the table, particularly during stretches in the first half when they could have kept them even closer in the game that they just weren't executing. Boston, I'm not rooting them out, but the fact that Golden State won on a bad Steph Curry night, not just a, a bad, like an all-time kind of bad shooting performance from Steph. The last time Steph Curry didn't make a three-pointer in an NBA game was in 2018, four years ago. It's been over four years since Steph had never made a three in a game. He had never not made a three in an NBA playoff game before. So if you're... Boston, this is the moment. This is the time, right? This is the time when you say, oh, man, Steph's not playing well. We have to pounce on this. And this is where I give all the credit in the world to Golden State because Golden State picked up where Boston couldn't. Boston's bench was horrendous. They went one of nine as, as a bench unit, at least from their three guys, right? Derek White, Grant Williams, and uh, Peyton Pritchard. One of nine from the floor from their bench unit. They had some garbage time guys come in and score. But like in terms of the guys who played meaningful minutes, that's terrible. So Boston was kind of forced to keep just throwing Tatum and Jalen out there and just kind of rolling with the same thing because they had no other help. Whereas you look at Golden State, all right, Steph's having a bad shooting night, 7 of 22 from the floor, 30, which is 31.8%, right? And then 0 of 9 from threes. He ends up having 16 points because – and 16 points, eight assists, and uh, he had three rebounds on top of it too. Played really solid defense. But for the most part, like, Steph just wasn't really a huge factor in terms of his actual scoring. But this is what makes Steph so brilliant is his presence on the court completely changes the way that you have to defend him. Completely changes the way that you have to even approach trying to defend this team. 
Because Steph is, like I said to open this up, one of the most influential players in the history of basketball. He's changed the game. And there might be someone down the road who breaks Steph Curry's three-point shooting records and, and does all that. Records are made to be broken. No one thought Reggie Allen or Reggie Miller was going to get beaten. Then Ray Allen does it right. And then Steph does it a couple of years later after that. That's just kind of how, you know, sports evolve over time. But there is no one in the NBA who gets face guarded the second they cross half court like Boston was trying to do to Steph in the first half. And Boston was not shy about that, right? They just got cooked for 43 in a game that they should have won and then lost in game four. So they said, we're not getting beat by Steph. If you're going to beat me, it's got to be Andrew Wiggins. It's got to be Klay Thompson. We're going to make Draymond Green actually try to be aggressive offensively. Gary Payton, Jordan Poole. Those are the guys that are going to have to beat us. And you know what? They did. They did. I wrote down my three, like my three stars of the night. If we're talking like hockey style, right? Number three was Clay. Because Clay, the defense he played on Jalen Brown, I thought was spectacular. He was covering Jalen Brown for the majority of the game when they were both in there, locked up on each other. And Clay was great. And when they needed it most, just to, just to settle down the Boston run, which was in the third quarter spectacular from Boston, Clay hits two huge threes, knowing that Steph wasn't cooking, both at the top of the arc, and both were absolutely massive, back to back, kept the game within reason. You know, and kept Boston from, you know, essentially going from, okay, we're down 10 at halftime to now we have to be absolutely lights out here in the third quarter. And they were, they came out their heads on fire. Clay did just enough there. And also when hit, when his back-to-back threes went in, the stadium went nuts. All right. The chase center absolutely blew up, which credit to Boston. They still made their shots after that. But it kept the Warriors in it. It kept them mentally locked in, energy high, really solid defense from that point on, particularly in the third quarter. And then obviously leading up to the Jordan Poole uh, buzzer beater three, the bank shot from the corner there. Like that shot, that stadium was absolutely on fire when it happened. So Clay deserves a lot of credit for that. The defense, which we questioned a lot in games one through three, games four and five, he has been massive in guarding Jalen Brown. And this is the version of Clay that you're like, yeah, no, this is the guy who was all defense. This is the guy who was able to kind of go up against guys like Kyrie and LeBron, you know, year in, year out, Russell Westbrook, KD, and, and hold his own, not just hold his own, but like actually affect them and, and be a top tier player. Uh, now, obviously you're not going to slow those guys down forever, but Clay against Jalen Brown, if he's playing defense like this, I mean, Jalen Brown has to be spectacular, and Clay did not let him do that. The second star I had was Gary Payton Jr. Gary Payton the second, plus 16, plus minus, 15 points in 26 minutes. Back cuts, rebounding, three steals, the defense, making the right plays time after time. The back cut he had on the inbounds where Igadala found him and he caught Marcus Smart sleeping. I mean, that's just high IQ Warriors basketball type of shit. That's the stuff that separates the Golden State Warriors from pretty much every other team that we have in the NBA. And yeah, you'll find guys who get slept on on back cuts, but in that moment to have a role player, because that's stuff that Steph does, right? But Steph generates so much attention from defenses that it's like, all right, well, we have to have at least one or two guys looking at Steph. Okay, well, we can't leave Clay open. Uh, Iguodala, brilliant basketball player, even though he's not anywhere close to the guy that he used to be. 
inbounds straight to Gary Payton Jr. Gets it. You know, those are little, little plays that make a huge difference. Right. And the fact that he ended up with 15 here is absolutely spectacular. It made a huge difference in that game. Six of eight from the field, fast break stuff made a lot of smart, sound basketball decisions. And that's ultimately what they need out of him in 25 minutes of play. Like if you're, if you're getting that kind of production, or even if you're getting 10 points from him out of 25 minutes of play, they become impossible to beat because there's no way that Steph is going to have another bad night like this. So to have Gary Payton step up to have Jordan Poole have 14, even though he didn't really look right for bait, but he made his shots count three of six from three. And yeah, the one was the, the half court, you know, buzzer beater type shot. Sure. But it's still like he was good when they needed him to be good. Um, and then the, the number one star is unquestionably Andrew Wiggins. I said it at the top when I started talking about game five. First time in his career he's ever had back-to-back double-doubles. This, is this isn't the guy that everyone thought was going to be like, oh, you know, the next version of LeBron that he was getting called in high school. I still remember that when I was in middle school and high school and he was coming up and high, at the high school ranks and thinking like, oh, man, this Andrew Wiggins kid supposed to be the next great one, the next great thing, right? And then he, he gets traded after being the number one pick from Cleveland, supposed to go to Cleveland, ends up being a part of the Kevin Love deal. And he gets kind of sent to Siberia in Minnesota, right? And his whole career from then on, he had moments where he had dropped 30, 40 points in a game, right? He had moments where he was putting up really, really big numbers for a terrible Minnesota team. The defense was never what we thought it could be based off his athleticism. Um, And even when, you know, the Warriors made the trade for Andrew Wiggins, they send D'Angelo Russell to Wiggins. For the first year, everyone just thought, okay, this is going to be a trade chip, right? Who's the next star that Golden State is going to get out there, you know, and, and play with, with Steph Curry, right? Who, who's that? Because con- he's making a max contract slot. So people thought, okay, you're going to package some picks, maybe a younger player, the picks that ultimately became, you know, Kaminga and Moses Moody, right? Like people thought they were going to package those picks, those first round picks that they got. And they were going to turn that and Andrew Wiggins into a Bradley Beal, or at one time it was Ben Simmons, right? Instead, what the Golden State Warriors did was they took a player who has elite athleticism, has scored the ball a lot in the NBA. In fact, if you look at his career point total, it's pretty outstanding. I'm pretty sure he's at like 12,000 career, po- uh, career points. Um, I, I, I'll, you know, we'll look it up right now because I'm genuinely curious. But the fact that Andrew Wiggins has significant experience as a scorer in, in the league I am just – I'm blown away by this Golden State Warriors team. And maybe maybe we shouldn't be, right? We talked a lot about the Max Struess, you know, and Gabe Vincent in, in Miami and all this player development story. How about the player development story for a guy who was the number one overall pick, had done some things, right, had done some things in the NBA in terms of scoring, being a number one scorer on a bad team, but turning that guy – who was never willing to rebound, who was never a willing defender, and getting him to fully buy in. I mean, that's the Steve Kerfect. That's the Tim. That is what made Tim Duncan so special, right? And that's what Steph is as an unselfish superstar. There's so few of them in the NBA. And that's what happens when you put, you know, Steph Curry on a team. You can pull guys in. They want to play with Steph. They, 
I, there's no other way to describe it. Yeah, Andrew Wiggins, 11,519 points. The dude has scored a lot in the NBA. And yet, he was looked at as a bust. He was looked at as, as, a, as a disappointment, which is completely unfair to him because he has done stuff. But some of the criticism was warranted because he didn't show up on defense. He wasn't the defensive player that we all thought he might be one day. And what he showed last night was not only will he check up one of the best scorers that he's slightly smaller than in Jason Tatum and play outstanding defense against them and contest every single shot, but he's also going to out-rebound you. 29 rebounds in the last two games. He's averaging 15 rebounds a game over the last two from your small forward because he is that athletic. He's the most athletic guy on the court. He can jump higher than anybody else. It's just a matter of the one-two. Are you going to go after it and go get it? And the thing is, is they needed that because Golden State, for the first time, you know, they won game two by sending a lot of Kevon Looney out there, but Kevon Looney got into foul trouble early. He had three fouls when they were like six minutes into the first quarter. So we're six minutes into the game. Kevon Looney has to go to the bench in game five. Game four, it was a purely effort thing, right? They wanted to be able to play a little smaller. They wanted to start Otto Porter Jr. instead of Kevon Looney. Well, Kevon Looney could only end up playing 16 minutes in this game. So if they're going to be undersized, you don't have a true rim protector. All right, Andrew Wiggins, you're the best athlete on the court. You have to go get every single rebound you can. And huge credit to Andrew Wiggins for actually showing out and doing that because it's not that easy. But he had the capability of doing so, and he's done it over the last two games. And if he comes out and continues to do this, to continue to play that elite defense on Tatum, if Klay Thompson can continue to, to challenge Jalen Brown, don't give Jalen Brown open shots. I mean, Jalen Brown was a great scorer and is still a good scorer, but in those first three games, because he had a lot of wide open threes because Clay was, was slow. And now all of a sudden in game four, game five, Clay's all over him. Every single drive he takes, right? They're collapsing on them in the lane. Anytime, whether it's Tatum, Marcus Smart, or, or Jalen Brown, anytime one of those guys is taken to the lane because they don't have a shot blocker, the collapsing that's been going on has been outstanding. And typically you'll see that too, right? Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Tatum, any one of them collapse or they drive to the basket, defense collapse, they kick it out to the outside, they swing it around. The get back defense, right? It's like, all right, I came in, collapsed on the help drive, right? They kick it out, boom, I'm right back out to my guy. And then this goes back to that Golden State Warriors rotational defense, their ability to switch. That comes into play. Everyone collapses. Everyone else knows exactly where they need to be to contest an, either an open three or to stop them from getting a wide open three. And that's been the biggest difference in the closeout minutes of game, five, of game four and then what we saw all of game five. I'm increasingly more and more impressed with how Golden State has fought back. This was my, my hunch going into this series was I thought that this would become a factor. Even after game three, when it looked like Boston was the better team, I still felt like this was going to be a possibility. But it was getting harder and harder to, to, to kind of hold on to that. But my gut was still just not to doubt this Warriors team and to also kind of gamble on the fact that, hey, Boston has been inconsistent. But at the same time, they had never – this is the first loss they had off of back-to-back -back, uh, – first back-to-back -back losses they've had the entire postseason. They were 8-0 after losing games or seven to no after uh, losing games in the postseason so far. And 
this feels like something that could shake them. Like, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Golden State goes in and closes out game six. In fact, I, I kind of almost want to pick it. But if Boston comes out with their hair on fire the way they did in, in the third quarter, right? Like, I, I had a feeling that based off of what we had seen from Boston this entire series and this entire playoff stretch, honestly, the way that Boston looked coming out in the third quarter, I thought they were going to look that way coming out in the beginning of the game. I thought they were going to come out, hair on fire, pouring it in. And instead, they had no offensive rhythm. They looked completely out of place. They looked nervous. You know, it's one thing to go into a game one when it's 0-0 and go in and win that game when it's tied up in the series. It's another one. You only got three games left, and you know that two of those three, if all of them get played, are going to be on that floor. And Boston still has a chance, right? You get to a game seven, anything can happen. We've seen Boston get down 3-2 multiple times throughout this, or blow 3-2 leads, but we've seen Boston also fight back, right? We've seen them win game sevens, multiple game sevens. They fight back from 3-2 against Milwaukee. I, I, I'm, I'm not ruling them out. But the biggest concern for, for Boston right now has to be there's no bench. Derek White looks completely shook. Grant Williams is a shell of himself and is just an annoying little gnat running around there. I think he has to be the most unlikable player in the series. And then Peyton Pritchard, as much as I like him as a decent role player, I mean, it, it, the first time he gets into the game, it's an inbounds pass, and he's out of bounds. He catches the inbounds pass out of bounds. You just can't do that. You can't do that in NBA Finals. You can't do that against a team as good as the Warriors. And the fact that Golden State – the personality of this game was different than the rest because Steph was so bad, and yet Wiggins was just spectacular. And Gary Payton, I mean, you're getting 29 from Gary Payton Jr. and Jordan Poole combined. Clay Thompson gets you another 20. Oh, yeah, and by the way, the one big guy that you've had, the, the best rebounder on your team, he has three fouls in the first five minutes of the game. Otto Porter plays 15 minutes and only puts up three shots as two points. I mean, Iguodala didn't look good in the four minutes he played. Bielitsa didn't look good in the four minutes he played. I mean, this team, this the, that Boston team of, of Tatum, Brown, Smart, all those guys, they basically lost to Wiggins, Gary Payton Jr., Jordan Poole, and Clay Thompson. And then, yes, yeah, Steph, the gravity of Steph and everything, the amount of attention they played him, it opened it up for everybody else. But Clay goes five of 11 from three. I mean, Clay is showing that he you cannot leave him open, right? And he got away with a little chicken wing there in, in the fourth quarter. And Marcus Smart tried to sell the shit out of it. That's probably why he didn't get the foul call. But Clay Thompson had a chance to set his feet and absolutely buried it. And for as we, we've just seen it, right? Steph, that team, they're not afraid of Boston. They're not afraid to go into Boston and win a game. Um, and the last thing I think I'll touch on here before we take a break is just Draymond, um, there's going to be a lot of talk in the halftime headlines is going to be about, oh, Draymond's fantastic first half. Finished with eight points, six assists, eight rebounds. It was a better game from Draymond. He also had eight points in the first half and didn't score at all in the second half. He also ended up fouling out of this game. Um, and frankly, he still doesn't look comfortable. I, I the emotional stuff for him is, is still where he is most impactful. That play where, you know, Tatum and Boston turns the ball over 
and then a timeout gets called or a TV TV timeout gets called and Tatum wouldn't give him the ball back and Draymond follows Jason Tatum over near the Celtics bench to try to get the ball back. The majority of other players are probably getting a technical there. Um, Draymond walked away. He didn't say anything, wasn't kind of jawing. I think the Boston, you know, Boston was pissed off. That was in the fourth quarter and it kind of felt like this is what's going to ice the game. But Tatum came out. He only hit one more shot after that for the rest of the game. Um, I think it got in his head. I really think it did. And I think as a whole, I think it got in their head. And they were really down in their post-game press conferences. Uh, Draymond, if he gives them what he gave them tonight or last night, that's going to be enough. But he has to be aggressive. He did pass up a wide-open layup at one point for uh, an elbow three and it didn't go in. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, But there's going to be a lot of talk about Draymond uh, and how big Draymond was. Draymond still wasn't great last night. Um, And and I don't know exactly what's up. I don't know if he's still been hurt from this, you know, some of the injury stuff he had earlier in the season. Um, But there's no question that when he's there and he lights them up, it changes, especially in front of that crowd. Um, and we'll see how it, how it looks in game six. Um, my prediction as of now, it's a tough call, but I think Golden State gets it done in Boston. Something looked different in Boston in the way they kind of broke down in the end of that game. Something I hadn't really seen out of them before. Um, back-to-back bad games for Jalen. And Derek White is a total confidence guy. Grant Williams has not been good since the game seven against Milwaukee when he shot like 23s and made seven of them. Um, Peyton Pritchard, as much as I like him, second-year player, nice little role player. I mean, they need all three of those guys to be really good. Horford looks slow, and I'm sure he's going to give it every single ounce of him that he has. But Robert Williams isn't the same guy. And the other thing you have to remember, too, is like, Kevon Looney's probably not going to get three fouls right away. Kevon Looney's probably going to be able to play in the game a lot longer. And if Andrew Wiggins, who looks to be the healthiest player in this series right now, if he continues to put the defense on that he has, um, I mean, Tatum's going to make shots, but Steph's going to come out hot. I I guarantee you Steph's going to come out hot. And if they give him any sort of space, Steph wants this one. And he almost wanted it a little too much in the third quarter in this game. And he caught himself a couple times and slowed it down and started setting up Andrew Wiggins, which is why he ended up leading the team with an assist with eight. Um, but if they're going to try to play that same defense against Steph, there are going to be other guys that are opening up. And we've seen Clay start to heat up over the last two games, uh, three games, honestly, game three, game four, game five. He started to look better and better and better. I would watch out for a big-time performance from Clay in game six as well. So we'll see. This game sixes are where Clay Thompson thrives. It's historically, that's when he's always had his monster games. I think we could potentially see another big one. I'm going to take the Golden State Warriors in a close one to win the NBA Finals game six Thursday night in Boston, which means we will be more than likely doing the same kind of format. Uh, I'll wake up early on Friday 
record the pod, get that out to you guys. Um, so we'll see. It's been a fun series back and forth. Uh, but this is where championship DNA comes from, man, right? This kind of experience. And I don't think we can underestimate just how youthful Boston still is. Uh, I heard somebody kind of compare it to, you know, the first time OKC was in the finals against Miami back in, was it 2011, the, whatever the lockout year was. Um, I think it's a pretty fair comp, right? I mean, that team looked so promising. They never ended up making it back together. But that OKC team was really, really good. They were really special. And had some really, really talented players on it, right? Harden, Westbrook, KD. Uh, I think they are objectively more talented than what we see here with Boston, but they were a little too young for the moment. And I think, you know, a couple wins under their belt early on, I think I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we say the same thing about this Boston team moving forward. So that's all I got on the NBA Finals. We're going to take a quick break, come back. We're going to preview the U.S. Open. The third golf major of the year tees off on Thursday. I'm going to give you some picks. Uh, as we all know, I love giving out my golf picks for majors and uh, talk a little bit about some of the awkward uh, live golf moments here with all of those guys being there in Boston for the U.S. Open. Uh, there's been some drama. And uh, as we said on Friday, the, the biggest winner in all of this is Netflix undeniably so we'll talk a little bit about that and we'll get you onto the week onto your week on the other side u.s open kicks off this week thursday at uh in brookline massachusetts at the country club which uh is one of the five original uh, courses that really that started the u.s open so ton of history at this course um historically it's a very interesting course, right? It's got very small, tight greens, um, tight fairways, and it's the U.S. Open, right? So going into it immediately, the things you kind of have to know about the U.S. Open is this is where people who like to root for the golf course, this is their tournament, right? Uh, people want to see – people like the U.S. Open when they want to see – you know, golfers struggle because they want to feel like, oh, look, see, you're just like me on the Sunday. I'm not that way. I like seeing elite golfers do unbelievable things, but the guys have gotten so good that even at the U.S. Open over the last couple of years, you're still seeing the winners kind of shoot seven to ten under par over the course of the tournament and still end up winning. So there's a lot to be excited about for this U.S. Open because the quality of the players are so good. Uh, the course is seeping to be amazing. Um, I saw a video of Max Homa you know, chipping the ball literally a foot from the, the thick rough that's three, four inches tall, just onto the fringe. And then it rolled, I'm not joking, probably 40 feet down the hill. So I have no idea how hard this is going to be compared to other ones. I do know that the USGA, who puts on the US Open, is not going to be a fan of uh of low scores in multiple years in a row so i would expect this to be a really really fucking hard golf course this week and i'm here for it i think it's going to be absolutely electric and i still think we're going to see some people shoot pretty impressive and, and pretty amazing scores uh so that means that this week's going to come down to a bunch of different things and part of the that's go some of the stuff that's getting into the excitement too is the fact that this is the first time we've seen you know, 
the live guys, the Dustin Johnson, Phil Mickelson, um, and Sergio Garcia, DeChambeau, Patrick Reed, all these guys we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, they've now been kind of reintroduced um, to all of the PGA Tour players. And it started on Monday with, you know, Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson, some of these guys having a big press conference. You know, well, I, they would, did their player press conferences. Um, man, did they come across just not well. Um, Phil in particular looked really, really bad. Supposedly, supposedly there was um, a family uh, who had a, uh, a, a member of their family had died in 9 11, uh, who had sent letters to all of the players who left um, the tour and called them partners with you know, the same groups of people who committed one of the most heinous acts of violence against our country in our country's history. Um, and, and pleaded them not to go and pleaded with them not to go take that money. Um, and when asked about it, man, Phil's Phil did not look good at all. He actually kind of yelled at the reporter in the middle of her explaining the question. Um, and then, just tried to lie out his ass. Um, these guys, look, they made a, 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 we've gone through it all. They made a decision for money and now they have to live with that decision. Um, but if we're just being honest, it just, none of them came across looking great. None of them came across looking great. And some of the interactions we've seen, um, there's been some guys on the tour uh, and, and some, some Twitter interactions and stuff that have been pretty interesting. Um, Justin Thomas yesterday just said, you know, after, First time he had talked since the Bryson and, and Gary, uh, sorry, Bryson and Patrick Reed decision. Um, and in his words, he was just really sad. It's just really, it's just the whole thing. It's just when the more guys go, it just makes him really, really sad. Because um, these are guys, they all grew up, especially this younger generation. It's guys he looked up to like DJ. Um, but it's also guys that are some of his contemporaries now going over there. Guys that he's won Ryder Cups with and had these amazing moments with and President's Cups and, uh, I, I, I feel for guys like JT, but also at the same time, this past weekend, we had Tony Finau, Rory McIlroy, and Justin Thomas in the final group of a Sunday going down to the 18th hole, and Rory McIlroy wins an unbelievable golf tournament. And there's nothing that the Saudi Golf League can never have that. And that's just for the Canadian Open, right? That's just some random RBC regular, you know, it's a relatively big event. It's a, it's a PGA Tour stop event. But we're not talking about like, the fifth, you know, the players or the memorial or one of the majors. I and mean, we're talking about just a pretty decent sized PGA tour event. And there's nothing that the Saudi golf league will ever have that will be able to hold a candle to the excitement that we had on the 18th hole and down the stretch there between JT and Rory on Sunday. So uh, the one other funny thing was Jordan Spieth went over. There were two guys, uh, Taylor Gooch and um, I forget who the other player was. Oh, Kevin Na. We're both warming up at the U.S. Open uh, at the range on Monday, and Billy Horschel was right next to them. And Spieth came down to congratulate Billy Horschel for winning the Memorial a couple of weeks ago. And Kevin Na like gave him a head nod and kind of like waved his hand at Jordan Spieth, and Jordan Spieth just didn't even acknowledge it. And I think that's the kind of stuff we're going to start seeing from now on. I think these guys have isolated themselves, especially someone like Taylor Gooch, who's young and still has his whole kind of career ahead of him. Um, you know, you, you got the bag, but you know, the way that other players, your peers respect the respect, the golf fans around the world, 
it may not be worth it in due time. And uh, who knows if they'll ever get a chance to come back to the PGA tour. I think there's some serious fence mending that needs to happen before that. So uh, a lot to get excited about. I was trying to think of some of what would be like the dream scenario. And to me, it would be like Rory or JT tied with Phil or Dustin Johnson on top of the leaderboard at the U S open, especially because Phil has never won a U.S. open. So after that, Phil has one last major spurt in him, right. To try to go out and compete at the U S open. And he goes out and, you know, competes against, and it's, we're in a playoff against Rory or a playoff against Justin Thomas. Um, and he loses that to me would be the ultimate like scenario. Uh, just any of these guys in the Saudi golf league getting to the end and then kind of coming up short or, or just one of the tried and true PGA tour guys getting a chance, I think would be really awesome as well. So uh, with all that being said, let's get into some of the picks that I have here. Uh, I got to add them up here. How many I have, I have some, some for the most part, I mean, you're getting pretty good odds on all of these. I'm not going heavy with any of the, um, any of the, the, you know, just from an odds perspective, I mean, Rory's the favorite at 10 to one. Then it's Justin Thomas at 12 to one, Scotty Scheffler, 12 to one, John Rahm, the defending champs, 12 to one, Cam Smith, 14 to one. So it's a lot of the similar names, Spieth, 20 to one, but uh, some of mine are, are more in that mid range. And then a couple of long shots here. I have, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight guys to um, including one, one pretty heavy long shot here that I think all have very legit chances to win this week. So, uh, spend your money. Again, I say this every time when it comes to majors, get your bets in before they tee off on Thursday and look at the top 10 finishes. Bet for the top 10s, the top fives, top 10s, top 20s. That's where the most money is won or lost. Uh, I mean, you're not going to get as great at odds, obviously, as winning outright, but these are just some of my outright picks to start us off here. All right. So, up first, um, I have my guy, Max Homa. Plus 5,000, it's going to vary on depending on, you know, where you end up betting and, and, and what kind of bets you end up looking at. Um, I love the way he's been playing this year. Uh, he's coming off his highest finish at a major ever, which is tied for 13th at the uh, PGA Championship a, a month ago. Um, I'm a big fan of, of Max. I've seen him play firsthand. He's a great ball striker. He's been driving the ball very consistently. He's in the top 10 in the end, uh, in the PJ tour right now and driving accuracy, which, you know, the last seven or eight U S opens have gone to really, really long hitters. Typically that's not going to help you at the U S open courses, right? Because of how thick the grass is because of all that. But at the same time, if you can drive the ball long and accurate, as we've seen a lot of these guys been able to do, I am a big fan of max this week. It's ultimately going to be, is his ball striking there? And then the putting, uh, the country club is known for having very, very tight, small greens. And again, it's going to be really, really fast. So I think short game is going to be important. And that's usually something that's hit or miss with max, but if he's driving the ball long and he leaves himself short wedge shots in, uh, you know, from fairway to greens, I think he's going to be able to, to put on a good showing, um, Shane Lowry at plus 3,300, uh, Shane Lowry is top three on the PJ tour right now, fairway to green and, and green accuracy and basically just getting it closest to the hole. And on a course like this, where the greens are going to be lightning fast, short putts are going to be your friends, right? Long putts are going to kill you. In addition to that, Shane Lowry's played well at the first two majors this year. He's played the best full season he's had basically since the year he won the British open, which was uh, three or four years ago at this point. Um, 
I think this is a would be a really, really good time for Shane Lowry to break through. He's always around in, in this year. He's had multiple top 10 finishes. It seems like in particular at the majors is when he plays his best. Uh, the problem for him is, is he's prone to a couple of blow up holes, right? A couple of doubles on, on par threes, a couple of shots here and there that he's going to want to have back at the end of the day. But I think Shane Lowry has a really good chance, really good ball striker again, really good wedge player. Um, and the accuracy to the green is the biggest one for him right now. That's the stat that kind of puts him over the edge. So Shane Lowry plus 3,300, very, very good odds. Uh, then we have Tommy Fleetwood. I don't know how many times I have to suggest him. I swore he was never going to be on my list again when it came to, um, uh, when it came to just overall betting on him in majors. Cause he always ends up coming up a little bit short. Um, and he never seems to have his best performances when he's, you know, kind of needed them, but he's had two really good finishes in both of the majors so far. Most of them have come on Sunday once he was already out of contention, but after a good showing at the Memorial, um, I like Tommy a lot. I'm, I'm always going to be a fan of him. I'm always going to root for him. And as, as we stand right now, at least, um, I'm going to go with Tommy Fleetwood. He's a little bit of a long shot, but again, same odds as Homa. I like Homa at plus five, plus 5,000 better. Um, but I don't know. I just want to see Tommy Fleetwood win a major. Maybe that, maybe I'm just too much of a fan of him, but I just want to see Tommy Fleetwood win a major. Uh, after that, Joaquin Neiman. He has been all over leaderboards all season long. Uh, we saw him at the Players' Championship compete. We saw him at the Memorial. He competed. He's been right around it. He's had some he had good showing at the PGA Championship as well. Uh, another just one of these young guys who I feel like is right on the cusp of kind of a breakthrough tournament. He's been playing good golf since the start of the year. Another really, really good iron player. And he's one of the putters that, like, when his putter is working, he's dangerous. And this week, like, you have to be able to two-putt everything. There's not going to be a whole lot of birdie opportunities if you start bogeying holes. Now, he is prone, again, to kind of having collapses where he'll shoot like a 76 one day, and all of a sudden he's four out, right? He could put together two really good rounds on Thursday and Friday, and then Saturday shoot a 76, and all of a sudden he's out of contention. And there's not going to be enough birdies on Sunday. So for the U.S. Open, you want to see consistent play, which is why the guy who is my favorite to win this year is Colin Morikawa. Because if there's one thing we know about Colin, who admittedly has had a really – kind of down year after starting off hot at the uh at the masters where he tied top five i think or top six um morikawa is the best ball striker on tour he's the most consistent ball striker on tour the u.s open this is when you have those those moments right he's already won two majors he won the british open last year he won the uh, pga championship two years ago this is his third major by the time he's 25 like if he's as good as we think he is, he saves his best. He wasn't playing good golf leading up to the Open last year, and yet he still won that pretty comfortably. Uh, I forget where the U.S. or where the British Open was last year, but he still won that tournament pretty comfortably. I expect to see Colin Morikawa right in the mix. The one downside for him is his putter has not been great pretty much all season. Even at Augusta, he struggled with it a little bit. But the ball striking for him is by far the most important part of this. And he's been a really, really good ball striker. So Colin Morikawa, if you don't have him, you know, to win, if you don't like him to win, definitely a top 10 play, I think, is a great call for Morikawa, maybe even top five. But the ball striking, he's going to be in the mix. He's just going to consistently get himself in positions to make putts. Whether he makes the putts or not, that's going to be up to him. Uh, next up, I have Brooks Kepka. Now, the main reason I have Brooks on here, 
uh, despite the fact that he has not played super well. Listen to this statistic. This is one of the craziest golf stats I've ever heard. The last four, the last four U.S. Opens, Brooks Kepka has only lost to a total of four golfers by the time the tournament was over. 620 golfers over the last four U.S. Opens have competed. He has beaten or tied 616 of 620 golfers. This is the event that he is at his absolute best. I think he's a phenomenal scrambler, right? Like that's one of the most underrated things when you talk about golfers. And, and at the PGA, uh, at the U.S. Open, that's exceedingly difficult to do. But this is where Brooks plays his best golf is in the majors. He's a major golfer. This would be his fifth major of his career. He hasn't, he's obviously won this event before. This would be a time when I could really see like Brooks, he's been up and down. He's had some individual days. It feels like he's had two good rounds, two bad rounds or mediocre rounds in every single major so far. As long as his, his health is up, as long as his knee feels up to it, I think Brooks is absolutely going to win or not win, but at least be in contention um, just because it's what he's always done for the last four. I, I can't get over that. Set. He's beaten or tied 616 of 620, 99.4% of the field at the U S open. He has beaten or tied over the last four U S opens, which is widely considered to be the hardest major. The dude brings it at this event every year. I like Brooks Kepka to compete. Uh, Tony Finau, I have next, still has not crossed the barrier into major champion yet, but he's put together multiple really, really good rounds this year. He was in contention on this past Sunday at the Canadian Open. I'm just, I'm just a, again, another guy I'm a fan of. Uh, he hits the ball a long, long way. Uh, his swing speed and strength is going to be very beneficial when we're talking about really, really thick roughs. For him, it's going to be finding the fairways off the tee, getting himself in position to try to two putt to make putts. And when he's cruising, when, you know, it's not just bombs away, you know, that tends to be harder courses for him. You know, last week, think about the two guys who were at two of the top three guys on the leaderboard, right? It was Rory McIlroy, Tony Finau. They're both in the top three in driving distance on average on the tour this year. So that was a course where, Hey, hitting the ball a long way helps you out here. It's not the longest golf course, the country club. But if he's accurate, he's going to be able to put himself in positions that other golfers can't. And so this is kind of like my Rory thing. It's like if Rory wasn't the favorite at 10 to 1, I would be looking at Tony Finau as a similar style of golfer where Rory, his wedge game and stuff hasn't always been the strength of his career, at least of the last four or five years. Tony, same kind of deal. They're very similar players in what their strengths and weaknesses are. But if he's able to drive it accurately, you're getting significantly better odds with Tony than you are with Rory. And Rory hasn't won a major in eight years. Plus, he's coming off of a win. I would rather go lean towards the better odds there and the fact that Tony's been playing really good golf. Uh, and then the one long shot I have, and this would be another one that's a really good top 10. Um, I have Harold Varner III. Um, he has won his first PGA tournament this year. He's been at the top of leaderboards on Sundays for multiple different ones, including the Players' Championship, which he came up a little bit short. Uh, just a really solid golfer. But if it's it's either going to be there or it's not, right? He's either going to show up and shoot really low and be in contention on Saturday, 
and then he might fall apart. But like he's either we'll know by the cut line, right? He's either going to be in contention or he's probably not going to make the cut. And I don't think there's much of an in between there with him. Uh, I think it's a golf course that suits his game well. He's a really, really good distance putter, which I think is going to be a really useful skill on this golf course in particular, even though the greens aren't super long. Being a good two putter here is going to take a lot to be able to be successful at, um, and, and be successful at this tournament. Uh, a couple other names I'll throw out the two Matthew Fitzpatrick. Uh, you can find him at about plus 1800 plus uh, anywhere from like plus 1800 to like plus 22, 2500. It varies all over the place. So whatever your preferred sports betting book, your sports book, sports app, whatever it's going to be, um, you know, look, look around a little bit to see the best odds you can get. Matthew Fitzpatrick won here uh, at the amateur, the U.S. Amateur Open um, back in, I think it was about four or five years ago before he turned pro. Uh, he's coming off his career best finish at a major, tied for fourth at the PGA. Uh, he was in contention this past weekend, playing really good golf right now, really, really good putter, and he's had experience winning at this golf course, the Country Club in Massachusetts, Brookline. Uh, this would be a really, really good perform uh, opportunity for him. Another guy that's kind of been around, been in the mix, but similar to what we just saw this weekend, he's prone to, all right, I'm in contention. It's Sunday. And then it kind of collapses. A little Shoffley-esque, um, but probably not quite as bad. Uh, I'll throw out some, some top tens here as well. Will Zalatoris, you can get him at plus 200 uh, in the top 10 finish. Not amazing odds by any means, but at the same time, he shows up at majors, right? So if you want a more safe bet, I think that's a good one. Uh, Morikawa, plus 240. That's going to be for top 10. Again, Good odds there for a guy who we know is going to be consistent. Brooksy, plus 360, another guy that I really like there. Um, Hideki's had a little bit of an up-and-down year, but he's so methodical, and this is a kind of tournament where it's like I, I like his approach here. Again, another really good ball striker, and he's another one when the putter gets hot that I think can do some serious damage. I would take pretty much everyone that I said before I also like as a top 10 uh, finish so talking about Fleetwood, Max Homa, um, Shane Lowry, all those guys. Harold Varner, the third plus 650. Uh, I'll th I would also sprinkle a little bit on uh, Terrell Hatton. He's a head case, right? I like Terrell Hatton a lot, but he's definitely a bit of a mental case when it comes to just, you know, staying calm on a golf course. And this is a place where if you're struggling, you have to be super mentally strong. But if he's cooking, he's got everything going. I mean, Tyrrell Hatton could fool around and win this too, um, but a top 10 finish for him, I think is absolutely in play. Um, and I'll, I'll throw one out, one more out there for you guys um, that I'm a big fan of here. Uh, I'll say, hmm, well, you know what? Let's go with Jordan Spieth. Jordan Spieth to win or to finish top 10. Uh, we've seen Jordan play really, really good golf this year. Uh, and frankly, we haven't seen him win a major in a while. Uh, we haven't really seen him be in that final pairing at a major in that final kind of in contention group on a Sunday in a while, but he can be so good. And his putting in short game is so good. A course like this, where it's like, you might have to hit, you might hit a one foot chip that rolls an extra 40 feet because of how these greens are laid out. Um, that's the kind of environment where Jordan Spieth typically thrives. We saw him win the RBC heritage down in uh, Hilton head earlier this year. So you know, sprinkle a little on Jordan, right? He's a fun player to root for. And anyone who's not a live golf guy, uh, I'm going to root for. And the fact that Jordan just completely snubbed Kevin Na and Taylor Gooch made me really, really happy. So fuck it. Let's put a little bit on, on Jordan Spieth as well. Bet responsibly, have fun, enjoy it. Remember, get your top 10 bets. 
top fives, all that stuff in on Thursday or, or now before Thursday, that's when you're going to get your best chances to win in golf events when it comes to golf betting. That is all we have for the pod. Game six of the NBA Finals, Thursday night. We will have a pod out for you Friday. Most likely will be solo as well because be, I'll have to record it Friday morning. Um, but I'm looking forward to get that out. Have a wonderful week, and we will talk to you guys on Friday. Take it easy, everybody.